His name now is being made great. The people, especially of those defeated kingdoms, they, they know the name Abram and they know that it's a great name. You're listening to Genesis, a sermon series preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to them, said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray one more time together. Lord God, you are our shield and our very great reward. This morning, your word says in Psalm 119, with our whole heart, we seek you. Let us not wander from your commandments. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. We, Lord, have stored up your word in our heart that we might not sin against you. Lord, we thank you that your word is able to make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. We thank you that all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that we, the people of God, the men and women of God, may be equipped, complete, and equipped for every good work. So we ask now, we pray now, that you would equip us, O God, for our joy, for our community's good, and for your glory. We ask this in the name above every name, the name at which every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and will declare with every tongue, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. We thank you and we praise you. We now uh, tune our hearts to be attentive to what you would instruct us from your word. In Christ's name we pray, amen. John Bunyan, the writer of Pilgrim's Progress, which I love for various reasons as a book, try to read it every other year just to stay uh, in tune with the great allegory that is written within Pilgrim's Progress. But the writer, John Bunyan, struggled terribly in his faith before he came to a settled faith in Christ. And here's what he wrote. Listen to these words. John Bunyan said, one day as I was passing into the field, this sentence fell upon my soul. Thy righteousness is in heaven. And methought withal, I saw the eyes of my soul, Jesus Christ at God's right hand. There, I say, was my righteousness. So that wherever I was or whatever I was doing, God could not say of me, he lacks my righteousness. He goes on to say, I also saw moreover that it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor my bad frame that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself. Now did my chains fall off my legs indeed. I was loosed from my afflictions and irons. My temptations also fled away so that from that time, those dreadful scriptures of God stopped troubling me. Now went I also home rejoicing for the grace and love of God. We continue this morning our study of the life of Abraham, the father of faith, in our exposition of Genesis. And today we're gonna cover just the first six verses of what we have to acknowledge is one of the Mount Everest of scripture. We are studying Genesis 15 today and next week, which is such an important instrumental chapter. And particularly today, verse six, that is at the heart of Paul's gospel in Romans chapter four. He also alludes to it in Galatians chapter three and it's reiterated in the book 
of James. This concept, justification by faith, having Christ's righteousness credited to our account, not because of works, not because of our obedience to the law, thank God. This idea was central, not only to John Bunyan's understanding of his faith, but it was also central to Martin Luther's understanding of Christianity, but it's also central to the Christian faith. And the biblical foundation of this cornerstone doctrine is rooted right here in the verses that we just read in Genesis 15. So today we're going to study these first six verses, and the next week we'll cover the rest of the chapter. You should see a heading above Genesis 15 that says God's covenant with Abraham, and next week we'll see how God cuts this covenant and what that actually means, that phrase, cutting a covenant. But for our time this morning, we're going to see verses 1 through 6 in a picture of God's loving initiative and response to Abram's frustration and concerns. In this study, we've been doing application points from the text as our uh, way of breaking down uh, the text into different sections as an outline. So if you're taking note, we get this application from observing and interpreting. Uh, the text. So we're going to look at three things today, starting in verses one through three. We're going to see how God graces people of faith with the blessing of his presence, even when hope is deferred. So not only are we going to see how God graces people, but secondly, verses four and five, we're going to see how God reminds people of faith, that he is faithful to keep his promise, even, or you could say, especially when it seems impossible. And finally, not only does God grace, does God remind, but God credits righteousness to people who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, who are justified by his grace as a gift, verse uh, six. So that's what we're gonna study together today and be reminded of this great doctrine of the justification we have by faith. So let's start with verse one. God graces people of faith with the blessing of his presence even when hope is deferred. The first three words are very important. After these things. After what things? Well, a lot of events have transpired in the 14th chapter of Genesis. If you remember from the last few weeks, or if you haven't been with us, and you are joining us today, maybe for the first time, we've learned in chapter 14 that Abram's nephew Lot had been the unfortunate and quite unwilling participant in a massive battle between nine confederated kings, four of which were strong, five of which were defeated. And in that defeat, Lot found himself and his family and all that he owned being carried away as spoils to an area at the northern end of Canaan, far from home. But Abram had gone and rallied his 318 men who had been trained and born in his household. He rallied to their rescue and routed the enemy and carried back all the spoils from that war, arguably some even of the four defeated kings, back to the land of Canaan. And we saw how he received the blessing of Melchizedek, the king of Salem, the priest of God Most High. We saw that last week. And his response to the blessing was to tie the tenth of all that he had brought back from battle. And then, instead of uh, receiving the offer of the king of Sodom, he rejected it because he knew that that offer had with it the promise of maybe an alliance or confederation with him, which would yoke this man of God with an ungodly man and would give this ungodly man credit for his own riches. And so he rejects that even uh, as it's offered to him. And so after these things, there's a lot there. There was a lot of things that just happened. And it says in the rest of verse one, it says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram, in a vision. You want to circle that whole phrase or underline it. The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision because this is the language that's used in the Old Testament to describe what happens with a prophet of God. When a man of God hears the voice of God and relates that to the people of God, uh, that is uh, usually the phrase that's used. The word of the Lord came in a vision. In fact, we learn in Genesis 20 verse 7 that Abram is a prophet. He's called a prophet. So this message from God is very timely and it's true. What is it that God says to him? Notice with me, the message is this, fear not, Abram, fear not. This is, by the way, the number one command in scripture. 
It's the command that is mentioned more than any other command. It's not a suggestion. It's a command. Fear not. Now, Alexander McLaren pointed out that this is a word characteristic of divine revelation. He said, it's a frequent occurrence from Abraham to John of Patmos. And it is the revelation of God, God revealing himself, which is the true antidote to fear. So when God commands Abram to fear not, and when God tells people throughout scripture as the number one command to fear not, the reason God says that is ostensibly because people are afraid. They're afraid, and so God says, fear not. Now, what was Abram afraid of? Well, he certainly created a lot of enemies, those four kings that he's just defeated. They may probably come back, and maybe he's fearing retribution from them at any time. That's certainly something that could be in the back of his mind. But I think greater than that is the looming fear that maybe God will not keep his promise. God had said to Abram, we've studied this recently in Genesis 12, 2, 3, and 7. God had said, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. The one who dishonors you, I'll curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That last particular promise we know is ultimately fulfilled in Christ, the offspring of Abram, the one who came through the line of Israel, who now the Gentiles, all peoples, including you and I, the families of the earth, the peoples of the earth can trust in. We are blessed through Christ, faith in Christ. Well, then in verse seven, in chapter 12, God appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So there's, there's a lot here that's already happened. If you just leave that up for a minute, he's already becoming a great nation. He's already blessed. His name now is being made great. The people, especially of those defeated kingdoms, they, they know the name Abram and they know that it's a great name. He's already seen Melchizedek blessed with 10% of the spoils because he blessed the name of Abram. And he's already seen these defeated kings cursed because they dishonored Abram. But there has to be something lingering in the back of Abraham's mind as he thinks about the promises that have been fulfilled. And yet he's wondering, how can I really become a great nation with offspring that inherits land if I don't have any offspring? I actually need to have a child. I don't need much, but I at least need one. I need one child for this whole process to begin. And what does God say to him? In his anxiety and his worry and his fear, God says, fear not, Abram. Why? He says, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Now, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. That's what we read and study from here uh, as a church. But you may have a different translation. You may have the New King James Version. And the New King James gets this really powerfully. It says, there, I am your shield. I am your exceedingly great reward. Yes, your reward, Abram, will be great because I am your reward. I am your shield. In other words, God is protector, but I am also your great reward. I am your provider. I'm your provision. God is the defender and the delight of Abram and for us, Abram's descendants by faith. God not only promises to protect, to defend, to surround Abram and his people, but also to provide delight and satisfy. That is what our God has done for Abram. And that is what he promises for us. Well, look at verse two. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, behold, you've given me no offspring. And a member of my household will be my heir. Now, if you're taking note, you want to circle that phrase, O Lord God. This is the first time, actually, in 15 chapters into the Bible, and this is the first time we have the recorded words of Abram to or addressing God, to God. And notice that he addresses him as Lord God or Yahweh Adonai. Now, this word Adonai or Lord, it formally means majestic Lord or master. So the Dictionary of Biblical Languages points out that Adon or Adonai is a title that you could use of men. So you could say Lord, meaning you're a servant of another human. They're Lord, they're Adon, Adonai, and you're servant. But when it's used of the true God, it focuses on the sovereignty, the authority, and the majesty 
of a ruler. But even so, this relationship is not subservient where we, uh, it's rooted in some sort of service only. It's rooted in relationship. It's rooted in covenant. It's rooted in promise. And so calling, addressing him as Yahweh, the master, the Lord. Abram, I believe, is not asking these questions out of complaint, but out of conviction. I don't believe he's asking these questions out of accusation, like he's wagging his finger at God, but out of allegiance to God. You see, he's reaffirming that Yahweh is absolutely good and he's the Lord, he's the master, he's in control. You see, the first time we see Abram addressing God is using a title of affirmation that I believe that God is sovereign and he will keep his promise. God promises your reward will be great, but what he ultimately desires is not for his name to be great, it's for God to make good on his promise to bless Abram. So when he asks this question, what will you give me? I continue childless and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. You've given me no offspring. Uh, That may come across like he's blaming God at first glance. But see, I believe his concerns as he's pouring out his heart in lament, where there's space to say, God, I'm I'm asking when this is going to happen, how this is going to happen. These illustrate to us that Abram's not denying God's promise. No, he is desiring them. He's desiring for God to make good on what he has said he would do. He says, I don't know how this is going to happen. My heir is Eleazar of Damascus, who's a good man, and he'll come back into play later. But Abram in this question is frustrated, fatigued, and waiting for God to answer, longing for God's promise to come to fruition and to fulfillment. Have you ever been there? As people of faith, looking for God to fulfill his promise and waiting for it, and sometimes losing heart, especially when our hope is deferred. We start to lose heart. We start to grow anxious. We can maybe fear. But see, like he does with Abram, God graces people of faith with his presence, with the goodness of himself. The reason, Abram, the reason we fear not is not because we're going to get the answer to what we've been asking for. Notice he doesn't say, fear not, Abram, I'll give you a child. No, he says, fear not, I am what you desire. What I'm working in this time of waiting and testing is I'm working a dependency and a love and an expectation for me, a desire for me. I'm enough. I'm enough for you, Abram. And he says to us, I'm enough for you. F.B. Meyer put it well. He says, to have God is to have all, though bereft of everything. But to be destitute of God is to be bereft of everything, though having all. This morning... We don't need the gifts of God to enjoy the reward that God is himself. And many times we reduce the blessing of God to merely what he gives to us. So we long for the hand of God over the face of God. Barnhouse said the highest view of the blessings of the gospel, the highest view is that God himself becomes our reward. May that be true in our life. May we savor and value the presence of God, the goodness of God, the grace of God, the character of God, and not just the hand of God. Well, let's look at how God responds to Abram, our second section. And the second main idea is that God reminds people of faith that he's faithful to keep his promises, even or especially when it seems impossible. Notice verse four. Again, the phrase that you'd only use with prophets, behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. So, notice what he's saying. The servant of Abram, Eleazar of Damascus. Faithful man, not the son of the promise. And it was norm, it was a norm in the ancient Near East, in this culture, that if you were a husband and wife with no offspring, with no children, if you were childless, barren, then you would adopt someone into the family that would be someone who you would leave your inheritance to. So a servant could very well be that person. And so Abram's just falling back on the next rightful person that that he would leave his inheritance to. But God promises, no, your very own son, not Eleazar, will be your heir. God leaves nothing to suspicion. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. In fact, 
the way the Hebrew is constructed, it reads like this. Your very own son reads like this. What will come out of your own loins? That is not easy to misinterpret. It's not going to be someone you leave it to who you welcome in your family. It's from your very body. Now, if you turn ahead and uh, read ahead next couple weeks, we're going to see in Genesis 16 that Abram has a lapse in faith. And he tries to make this happen in his own strength rather than waiting for God to make good. And so look at verse 5. God says, this is not the heir. Your very, uh, your very own son shall be your heir. And then in verse 5, he brought him outside and he said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abram, look up. So this is happening at night. Look toward heaven. Number the stars. I don't think he literally wanted him to do that. So Abram, okay, one, two, 3,010, 3,011. I don't think that's the idea. The idea is this is showing the extent of the promise of God. You see, numbers, science, uh, scientists estimate that the number of stars in the observable universe totals approximately 10 to the 23rd power. That is a number that approximates also the amount of sand, grains of sand on a seashore. You see, God is saying, Abram, not literally count, but this is something innumerable. Every time you walk outside and look up at night and see the stars, you're going to be reminded that so shall your offspring be. Innumerable, vast, a great nation. You have no children yet, and you're an old man, and yet I'm going to do this. You know, in chapter 13, God had said something similar, and yet a different analogy. Genesis 13, 16, we've already studied this, but God said, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Again, God's not encouraging him to get a sandbox and to begin auditing the amount of sand that is uh, there on the seashore. But see, in Genesis 22, years after this, Abram offers Isaac, his son, the son of the promise, on the altar. God spares him, and God reaffirms the covenant saying this in Genesis 22. I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. Abram, look up, and what will you see? You'll see the extent of my promise. Look down. Try to number the stars, number the grains of sand. It's impossible. This is the extent of my faithful promise. What seems impossible, improbable, I'm able to do because I am the God of the impossible. You see, God reminds Abram, he reminds people of faith that he's faithful to keep his promise even when it doesn't add up. It doesn't seem to make sense. Abraham has no offspring, no son. He's just waiting. He's just watching. He's already old. His wife is barren. He, he has no reason to believe this. Uh, he is told by God, you don't need to resort to make Eleazar your heir. I have something miraculous that's coming. And see, it's in these times of waiting, of expectation, that many believers in God flounder and fail. Living in between the time of the promise of God and the fulfillment of the promise, that space in between, that is the challenging time for us. This requires patient endurance and hope. And you and I know what this is like, don't we? We live in the, the last days we live in the already and the not yet. We live in that time where Christ is already king and yet not yet in the sense of his kingdom being consummated. We know Christ has already ascended to heaven and yet he promised to come again and we're waiting for that day. So we live in that tension of knowing that he promised to come again and yet we're waiting with it, especially in the last two, three years. We very much have been waiting for it with anticipation. Our family, especially Jen and I, often find ourselves praying, Maranatha, Lord, come quickly. Maybe today's the day. Wouldn't it be great if the Lord returned while we were worshiping together? That'd be so glorious. We'll see in Romans chapter 8, one of the teenagers said, no, I need a couple more years. Okay. In Romans chapter 8, the apostle Paul discloses the fruit of the Spirit that is required or needed for these times of waiting. Romans 8.25, we studied this last year. Paul says, but if, or since we hope for what we do not see, we wait with it, or we wait for it with 
patience. It's patience that's necessary. This fruit of the Spirit is necessary in our times of waiting. And so when we think about hope, biblical hope is not wishful thinking. I hope it doesn't rain today. No, it's the joyful, confident expectation of certainty, even when and especially when the outcome is yet out of view. There is that unseen quality of hope, which allows us to wait with patient endurance. We wait for it eagerly. We, like creation, we groan inwardly for redemption to happen. And yet in the midst of this, God reminds us to wait with patient hope. I've seen some people, and you have as well, they wait poorly. Maybe you've seen them at the doctor's office. You see that their appointment's running late and they pace the floor and they look at their watch and they tap their foot and they, they shift their weight. Or they, I hate when I'm next to someone who does the nervous leg thing where they're moving their leg uh, nervously and then the whole bench is shaking. Uh, it's, people don't wait well, especially in traffic as they're driving and they can't wait for the person so they swerve around them and drive foolishly. Our posture as Christians is not to be like that. Our posture is like a, a war-weary soldier who holds the line and receives word that reinforcements are coming. The war, better than that, has already been won and victory is already declared. But we stay engaged here while the battle rages until the commander arrives in his might and defeats the enemy finally and decisively. Leon Morris said it this way, patience is the attitude of the soldier who in the thick of battle is not dismayed but fights on stoutly whatever the difficulties. I wish that chapter 16 was Sarah got pregnant, but it's not. They've already waited for long years and they have to wait for more long years for God to fulfill his promise. And in the midst of waiting, God reminds Abram, he reminds us, he will be faithful to keep his promise. As I've said many times, God's credit score of faithfulness is perfect and he's never defaulted on it. Now, let's look at this final verse. I want to spend most of our time uh, because this is the key verse in this chapter and like I mentioned earlier, this is the, uh, really the hinge on what justification by faith really hinges on. So this final idea is that God imputes righteousness to people of faith who are justified by his grace as a gift. Notice verse six, and I want to read it the way it was supposed to be read. Verse six, and Abram believed the Lord and the Lord counted it to Abram as righteousness. Abram's response to what God just said is active trust. It's expressing a belief that is displayed through obedience. Now the Hebrew implies Abram kept believing and kept relying on the Lord. This is not the first time he's had faith. He has been expressing this faith since he left Ur of the Chaldees. He's been expressing this faith every time he went and set up an altar to the name of Yahweh in the midst of hostile Baal-worshiping territory. Abram's been expressing this faith when he offered to Melchizedek a tithe and when he refused to accept the spoils from the king of Sodom. And even though Abram has every reason not to believe God, hey, Sarah's barren, hey, I'm old, this just doesn't make sense. Instead, he places his faith in God, to trust God, saying, I know God will bless me with a son and through that son, a multitude of descendants. Abram believed God, God credited it to him as righteousness. This is an important verse, so important that it's picked up by Paul in Romans chapter four to underscore what our salvation, our justification is actually based on. It is not based on the law of Moses, thanks, God, thanks be to God, but it came before the law when Abram's faith was counted to him, was credited to him, or was reckoned to him as righteousness. So you knew this was coming. Hold your place in Genesis. Let's turn over to Romans chapter 4, but we're going to start in Romans chapter 3. Go to the New Testament book or swipe there to Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 21. Now, if you weren't here for a Roman study, go back and uh, please listen to those sermons. You can go on uh, wherever you get podcasts and listen to Shoreline Online. We've got five or six subscribers, so that's great. You guys can add to the count and uh, increase that a little bit. 
we are so thankful we have technology to put sermons out there. But in the book of Romans, in that study, we learn in chapters 1 and 2 that Paul is explaining to the Romans the wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against the unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. And he also has it unpacked that both Jew under the law and Gentile apart from law are both guilty uh, before God. Well, then he says in chapter 3, verse 21, but now, that's unrighteousness, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And that word all is important. We'll see that in a moment. Well, turn with me to chapter 4, starting in verse 1. He says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? According to the flesh, meaning if you're a Jew, he would have been your forefather from a uh, hereditary standpoint. According to the flesh, our forefather. Verse 2, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about but not before God. For what does the scripture say? As we just read, Abraham believed God. It was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith, not his wages, is counted as righteousness. So he's arguing here, Abraham was not justified by works, but by faith. And Paul goes on to argue here that the promise of God did not come through circumcision. Genesis chapter 17, where circumcision occurs, it happened way after God had already promised and Abram had already trusted. So circumcision was a sign. It was a seal of the covenant, but it chronologically came after faith came. So it wasn't that he was saved by circumcision. He was saved by faith. Now, according to Paul in verse 13, not only did the promise not come through circumcision, it also did not come through the law at Sinai. Verse 13, for the promise to Abram and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherence of the law, in other words, I do all the things in the Old Testament Mosaic law, I, I follow the law to a T. It's, if it is those who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there's no transgression. We don't have time to go in uh, to that today. But if it's not through the law of Moses, then where does righteousness come from? How do I get in right standing with God? How do I justify myself before a holy God? I'm a sinner. I'm in Adam. So that means by default, in my natural state, I'm not innocent. I'm not neutral. No, I am an enemy of God. In my natural state, we just brought up these beautiful, cute little sinners for us to dedicate to the Lord. In my natural state, I stand in opposition to God. And so where is my righteousness going to come from? If it's not through the law, where does it come from? Well, look at the next section, starting in verse 16. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. There's that word again, all. But not just those who... He says, the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I've made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, verse 18, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. Now notice verse 19, Abram, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead. I like that Paul says that. That's not comical, but it's interesting. His body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. He did not weaken in faith when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Verse 20, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That's what faith is, being fully convinced that God is able to do what he promises. We don't presume on God, but we trust what God has already promised, and we, from that place, have full conviction. 
verse 22. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. And then we have verse 23. We could end there, and that would be so incredible and glorious and good. But then for us, we have verse 23. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. You see, beloved, the righteousness of God was not credited only to Abraham by faith, but to all who place their faith in Jesus Christ. Now look at the very next verse. Ignoring the chapter distinctions, Paul's train of thought is therefore, chapter 5, verse 1, since we have been justified by faith, past tense, we have, present tense, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have been justified. We have been declared forensically righteous by faith. And this declaration settles the enmity. It settles the strife. It settles the penalty. It clears the debt. It absorbs the wrath of a holy God upon sinners. You and I, because we have been justified by faith, declared righteous, now we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That didn't get enough amens, but it needed, it needed a few. Now let's pause there and look over at Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, Paul is going to call back this idea again to the Galatians. Poor Galatians. I mean, Paul calls them foolish. He says, who has bewitched you? Chapter 3. And then right before verse 7, he asks them a question. Did you receive salvation by works or the hearing by faith? And then he quotes the verse that we just studied in Genesis 15, verse 6. But then in verse 7, notice what he says. He says, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. What? It's not just those who are Jews. No, it's all who trust in Christ. Verse 8, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith, that's you and I, who have trusted Christ, we are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. You see, this righteousness that was counted to or credited to Abraham, it was credited to his account by faith. It's not just for Abram. It's for all who place their faith in God alone. This is what we know as double imputation. It's been imputed to us, but something has been imputed uh, from us to Christ. So our sin inherited from Adam was imputed to Christ. Our sin was placed upon him, and yet his righteousness was imputed to us by faith. Now, this does not mean that we are made righteous. It means we're declared righteous. Okay, you need to understand the difference. In Romans chapter 6, Paul uses that same word, credited or counted, to, to tell us in an exhortive way, hey, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin. We know that we still sin, but count yourselves dead to sin. And so it's, his righteousness uh, has, been, uh, de, has been imputed to us. We are declared righteous, but we're not yet made righteous in that moment. You see, Roman Catholic theology, many of you may have grown up in the Roman Catholic Church, it teaches that through works and through sacrament, you are made righteous. Literally, you become righteous as a part of your nature. In fact, in the Council of Trent, Canon 24, it says, your good works are not only a part of your justification, your good works increase your justification. They increase your right standing before God. Now, I believe we're Protestants who are quite fond of the Reformation, and we would hold what Romans 5 1 says. No, we are justified by faith once for all. This means we don't stand before God righteous and just because of our own actions, but because We've placed our faith in Christ, and that has made us right. And so we don't, like the world does, we don't justify ourselves before God. Unbelievers seek to do that. I'm going to justify myself before God. And so hopefully God will weigh my good deeds against my bad deeds. And, and seeking to say, well, I've done some good things. I'm not that bad of a person. That's like saying, by the way, same logic. 
you drove your car, you struck and killed a child. And yet you're going to appeal to the judge by saying, I've helped some children overseas through Compassion International. And so because I've helped children, that should weigh or outweigh the mistakes that I've made. That logic is erroneous, and to their destruction, the world is greatly mistaken. I want to read a couple uh, snippets from the 1689 London Confession uh, on the section of justification. And it's important that we understand different creeds and confessions and grow in our understanding. This is filled with scripture, but listen to what it says about this. Uh, the 1689 says, Those God effectually calls, he also freely justifies. He does this not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins and accounting and accepting them as righteous. He does this for Christ's sake alone and not for anything produced in them or done by them. Amen. <laughs> he does not impute faith itself, the act of believing or any other gospel obedience to them as their righteousness. And this is important. Instead, he imputes Christ's active obedience to the whole law and passive obedience in his death as their whole and only righteousness by faith. This faith is not self-generated, lest we get the glory. No, it is the gift of God, as Ephesians 2 says. You see, this is the work done in us. But look at what the confession goes on to say about the work of Christ. It says, by his obedience in death, Christ fully paid the debt of all those who are justified. He endured in their place the penalty they deserve. By this sacrifice of himself in his bloodshed on the cross, he legitimately, really, and fully satisfied God's justice on their behalf. Yet, their justification is based entirely on free grace because he was given by the Father for them and his obedience and satisfaction were accepted in their place. These things were done freely, not because of anything in them, so that both the exact justice and the rich grace of God would be glorified in the justification of sinners. This is glorious good news. You see, ours is an alien righteousness that has nothing to do with outer space, that has much more to do with outside of us. It is not our righteousness, it is Christ's righteousness. We believe by faith alone, sola fide, that we are declared to be in right standing with a holy God. Not in a progressive way where we need to keep adding to it, but no, there's no more work to do in our justification. Jesus victoriously declared from the cross to telestai, which is translated, it is finished. The work has been done from first to last. One person said, salvation is not a purchase to be made, nor wages to be earned, nor a summit to be climbed, nor a task to be accomplished. It is simply and only a gift to be accepted, and it can only be accepted by faith. If you're here today and you've never repented of your sin and trusted Christ, you must know today Jesus took the place of punishment that you deserve. And if we will receive his finished work, then his righteousness is imputed to us. Our sin is imputed to him. And there is no more work to do to be in right standing with God but to believe. Jesus said this in John 6, 28. They said, what must we do to work, to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered him, this is the work of God. You want to know what it is? It's that you may believe in him who, who he has sent. As we go back to Genesis chapter 15, uh, to wrap this up this morning, we're going to see the rest of this chapter, and you guys can read ahead this week, how God shows Abram, this is the land I'm going to give you. I'm going to be faithful. And we're going to see how this handshake deal, to use our vernacular, was not two parties where both of them say, okay, I'll keep my end of the bargain. If you keep your end, make sure you pay your rent on time and I'll make sure the place is provided, but we each have to keep our end of the bargain. We're going to see how God will completely keep his covenant. And so we'll be greatly encouraged as we continue to study and understand the covenant of God with Abram. But as we come to a close this morning, a few questions for us to consider together. The first question is this, do I, and this is for each one of us to ask, do I understand and savor the doctrine of imputation and justification? Martin Luther said, if we understand this, then we are in the clearest light. But if we know it not, we dwell in the densest darkness. 
Do you understand it? I, I want to commend you a great resource if you don't really understand the things that we barely talked about today, justification by faith. There's a, a movie, a documentary called The American Gospel. I just want to encourage you to watch that. How many of you have watched it? Let me just see a show of hands. So a good amount of us have watched it. For many of you, uh, that is one of the steps on the journey that really helped you understand the true gospel. And there is a false gospel, which is no good news at all. And so th that is a great, uh, great resource to help you grow and understand uh, justification by faith. Also, we read from it today, the 1689 London Baptist Confession. Founders Ministries has this in the modern English. So I encourage you to read that. And we'll put both links of those uh, resources on our sermon notes for today's teaching. The question is, if you do understand this truth, though, do you savor it? Do you cherish it? The fact that Christ's righteousness, not yours, your righteousness, my righteousness, were like filthy rags before a just God. We dare not stand a chance, and yet his righteousness has been granted to us, counted to us, credited to us by faith. This should cause great awe, gratitude, and allegiance to our great God and Savior. It should cause us today to worship with hands and hearts lifted high. Second question, do I treasure God? Do I treasure God? Is God enough? I wonder this morning if you've looked to the hand of God more than simply valuing the face of God in Christ. I wonder if you and I from day to day go throughout our day looking for the blessing of God, the gift of God, rather than simply experience the blessing of having him. He is the greatest treasure. He far exceeds anything in all of creation. And so the question is, what in God isn't enough that you and I would find temporal satisfaction in created things? I wrote this yesterday. I wasn't going to read it, but uh, I wrote this down yesterday, day of rest. And I was just thinking about how God desires that, that we would delight ourselves in him and he gives us the desires of our heart. So I just wrote this yesterday thinking about, man, I don't delight in Christ enough. But here's what I wrote. Jesus is my delight, the joy of my soul. When troubles, fears, and doubts confront me, I must look to the one who calms the sea, touches the leper, speaks to the outcast, walks on water, raises the dead, sups with sinners, cares for the broken reed and the smoking flax. It's his yoke that's easy, and it's his burden that's light. His way is the narrow way, and his gate is the open gate. His name is salvation, and his is the light of life. He may be misunderstood by the ungodly, rejected by the self-righteous religious, scorned and ignored by the political establishment, but he's beloved by those who hear and receive his gentle, humble words. My joy must spring from his person, his counsel, and his presence. Do I delight in him? It's a question for me. It's a question for us. Do we treasure God? Is he enough? Well, finally, a question for us to think about as we, again, groan inwardly, for the consummation, the redemption. And that is, as we wait for the culmination of God's promises, are you and I waiting with expectant hope and contagious, expressive joy? Or are we pacing the waiting room and getting frustrated? Like Abram, I want to encourage us to trust God and wait, to embody biblical hope, confident assurance that the God who opens barren wombs who raises the dead, who brings spiritual life to those of us who have been dead in our trespasses, who graciously gave us Christ, will not with him also, will he not also graciously give us all things that he's promised? So may our waiting be marked not with frustration, but with a contagious expressive joy so that the world would say, I don't understand. I see that we're only one new story away every day from from chaos, from calamity, from anxiety. And yet those Christians meet together every Sunday and throughout the week and every time they come back out in the world, there's joy. I don't understand what they have and what they know, but I long to know it. As we close this morning, may we wait with expressive joy and expectant hope. Amen? Let's stand together. We're gonna uh, close by looking at the words of a hymn called The God of Abraham Praise, several hundred-year-old hymn. Here's what this hymn goes on to say, and then we'll sing and have our benediction. The God of Abraham Praise, who reigns enthroned above, ancient of everlasting days and God of love, 
Jehovah, great I am, by earth and heaven confessed. I bow and bless the sacred name forever blessed. The God who reigns on high, the great archangels sing, and holy, 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 cry almighty king, who was and is the same and evermore shall be. Jehovah, Lord, the great I am, we worship thee. Yes and amen. Let's pray together. Lord God, you are our great reward and you are our shield. You're the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You're Israel's God and you are the Gentiles' only hope. And so we ask for a deeper understanding of the truth of our imputed righteousness. Like John Bunyan, may this cause us to leap with joy, to savor the sweet doctrine of justification by faith. Lord, we desire to treasure you, delight in you, submit to you. We know that you are enough. You always have been, you always will be faithful to keep your promises to the very end. Lord, we live in a world where many people have failed us. They've made empty promises where their word has not meant much. We find ourselves in a creation that's been marred and corrupted by the curse of sin, and it has affected all of creation. So Lord, we need more strength in these circumstances and more resolve to anchor our hope in your unwavering, unwavering character. And so this morning, Lord, we thank you for the work of Christ who has imputed his right standing upon us. We thank you for the work of your Holy Spirit who imparts righteousness to us as we grow in our sanctification. And we thank you, blessed Father, that one day our righteousness will be realized as we're glorified together with you. So until that day, until that day of glorification, we fix our eyes on you. May we be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. We thank you for the assurance from Calvary, from the cross, to tell us that it is finished. So Lord, we rest today in your finished work and until eternity, world without end. We pray this for the praise of your glorious grace. And all who agree together said, Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. at the port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.